Bibles in James chapter 4, James chapter 4, and we'll look at uh, one verse to begin with this morning, James chapter 4 and verse number 8, all of our children 6th grade and down are being dismissed, the fellowship hall for children's church, and then if you would also find the book of 2 Chronicles and chapter 15 in particular, but to James chapter 4 and verse number 8, we'll read this verse and then uh, I will reference Second Chronicles and read a couple of verses, a few verses out of chapter number 15 as well. And we'll look at uh, the preceding and the following context of verse number 8 uh, in James chapter number 4. Notice James chapter 4 and verse number 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Uh, many of you may have that memorized. Uh, if, if you don't, that's fine. But just say, many of you, just say it with me if you know it. Ready? James 4 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And that is the verse that I want to be the center of our message and our consideration this morning. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, help us as we look into this New Testament verse and uh, seek to find challenge and encouragement for our hearts as we consider the importance of seeking you in our personal lives, seeking you as a church, and Father, the, the impact that that can have on society and culture around us as your people, both individually and corporately, determine to seek you with their whole heart, to draw nigh to you, as James says it in chapter 4 and verse number 8. Lord, I need your help. I pray that your spirit would be working and doing a work in our lives. I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to Revelation 2 and 3, is present here with us this morning. I pray that he would be pleased by all that takes place and by our responses and by the growth that takes place in the lives of believers. I pray for one that may be here this morning or more that does not have the assurance of salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I pray that the Spirit of God would be drawing them to Christ, and if they are without Him, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. My heart this past week or so has been drawn to this passage of Scripture, in part because I have been reading uh, in the book of Second Chronicles, I finished in my own daily Bible reading the book of Second Chronicles this week, and I was reminded of a theme, and I just right here at the outset want to bring this to our attention. I was reminded of a theme in Second Chronicles as it uh, really catalogs, or, uh, catalogs the kings of Judah. Remember, the, the nation of Judah was the southern half of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon's son Rehoboam and King David's grandson Rehoboam, remember that the kingdom divided. Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. The northern kingdom, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes called the northern kingdom and maintained the name of Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah and the sons of David, the descendants of David that sat on the throne ruled. And Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles are really a focus on those kings of Judah. And something struck me again as it related to those kings of Judah. Solomon's son, David's grandson, Rehoboam, and I want you to hear this. The Bible tells us that he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. A generation or two later, another king of Judah, a descendant of David by the name of Asa, commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers. 
And then he told the people of Israel in a speech that he gave, Asa said, we are blessed as a people because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he hath given rest all around. Chapter number 15, if you have it open in front of you, notice if you would, verse number 2, the middle of the verse, Asa uh, is here listening to the word of the prophet Oded, a prophet of God, or Azadiah, Azariah, pardon me, the son of Oded. And Azariah the prophet says to Asa and Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you be with him. And if ye, what's the word? Seek him, he will be found of you. Look if you would at verse number four. But when they in their trouble did turn to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. Drop down to verse number 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. Verse number 15 of the same chapter. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them and the Lord gave them rest round about. You can go across the page to chapter number 16 in verse number 12, and you'll find towards the latter part of Asa's life, though his life was characterized by seeking the Lord towards the end of his life, his heart strayed from the Lord. He was diseased, and the Bible says in chapter 16 and verse number 12, that yet in his disease he sought not the Lord, but to the physicians. Now, we have a doctor in our midst today. That's no incrimination against our doctor. How many of you are grateful for a good medical doctor? Okay. Most of you probably have a family doctor. Uh, but in Asa's case, he sought the, the doctor and refused to seek the Lord. Another generation or two later, a man king by the name of Jehoshaphat, chapter 17 and verse number 4, walked in the first ways of his father David and sought the Lord God of his father. Chapter number 19 and verse number 3 in regards to Jehoshaphat again, the prophet says to him, Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, and thou hast prepared thine heart to seek God. The Bible tells us also of Jehoshaphat that he feared and set himself to seek the Lord and to ask help of the Lord. King Uzziah, good King Uzziah, sought God in the days of Zechariah. And as long as he sought the Lord, the scripture says, God made him to prosper. King Hezekiah, the good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek the Lord. Chapter 31 and verse 21, the Bible says of Hezekiah that he sought his God with all his heart and prospered. And then King Josiah, the last good king of the kings of Judah, the Bible says of him that while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. That's a pretty apparent uh, and obvious and important theme, isn't it? Seeking the Lord. And what struck me again as I read this passage is in truth the success or the failure of the kings of Judah pivoted on his seeking the Lord his God, his drawing nigh to God. And I say by way of personal application to us, and remember the New Testament says that to the New Testament believer, we are kings and priests to our God. But may I say this, the success or the failure of the believer's life will hinge on the exact same issue. To the degree that we draw nigh to God, as James says, to the degree that we seek the Lord, will determine the success or the failure of our spiritual lives. And so James chapter 4 and verse number 8 is vital to your life and mine as a child of God. If you know Christ as Savior, one of the most important verses in all the New Testament is James 4.8. 
Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. We could say it this way. You and I cannot live successfully as a believer without living in the awareness of the presence and the power of God in our lives. We can't do it. In the early days of the Rose Bowl Parade, when it was called the Tournament of Roses in Pasadena, California, many of you may know this, it's New Year's Day, they have this massive parade, 40-some floats, and also it features equestrian horses prominently as well. In the early days, early 1900s, the entire parade, thousands and thousands of spectators lining the streets there in Pasadena, California, watching these beautiful and ornate, these massive intricate uh, uh, floats go by, uh, saw the entire parade come to a standstill because one of the first floats stopped. The truck that was pulling the float in this annual massive event, okay, ran out of gas. The entire parade came to a halt until somebody could go get some gas to put in the tank of this truck, pull in this beautiful ornate float, And the irony of it is that it was the float and a truck representing the Standard Oil Company. You know, you and I can, as believers, we can have all the resources. We can have all the beauty. We can have all the facilities. But if we don't have the power and the presence of God, we're not going anywhere. Draw nigh to God. As I look at this passage of Scripture back in James chapter 4 and verse number 8, I see that this verse contains the greatest prescription, if I can say it that way, for the Christian life. Draw nigh, as James has it here, is a command. It's an imperative. He's not making a suggestion. He is giving a directive. He is giving a prescription. You know, as it relates to prescriptions... I reference our doctor in the house again. There have been times Dr. Shoemaker has helped us over the years get a prescription. Um, I have a family doctor now down in Greenville, and occasionally I'll get a prescription from him. About a year ago, I had my back, a muscle in my back knot up, and I think I've shared this with some of you before, and it was incapacitating for several days. I couldn't even bend over to tie my shoes. And I thought, you know, when I had had friends my age who said, my back's out, I can't move. At first, I used to think of them, wimp. Okay. Until my back went out. And I was like, this is for real. That knot of muscle that just kept tightening down more and more. And so my doctor prescribed for me a muscle relaxer to help me get through that. And he said, you can take as many as three a day, a little five milligram pill. Well, I took one and I have come to call that pill my I don't care pill. And one is all I could handle. And I think if I went back and looked at the bottle, it would say three a day or as needed. Okay, as needed. In other words, you don't have to take all three of them. But, you know, when it comes to a doctor, a prescription is something that's given to us, prescribed to us for our good, for our help, for our health. But there's a balance in all of it. I think about a physical therapist who may prescribe a certain exercise regimen to someone who's recuperating from a knee replacement or a hip replacement. I think about athletic coaches uh, prescribing a, a workout regimen for a strength conditioning for athletes. I think about a dietitian 
can give a, a prescription as it relates to supplements or what to eat, what not to eat. A financial advisor. I heard a man say this the other day. He was talking to someone about their retirement, and he used this term, the health of your 401k. And so a financial advisor may give a prescription. Okay, do this with this portion of money at this stage. But I want you to understand as it relates to this greatest prescription that James gives, it is a command, draw nigh to God, and it's not a suggestion. You and I cannot spiritually succeed unless we prioritize drawing nigh to God in our lives. We can't. This is a tremendous exercise, drawing nigh to God through prayer and through daily time in the Word of God and through uh, being in God's house with God's people and other, as we call them, spiritual disciplines that help us to draw nigh to God. Daily times of worship where good music is used to turn our heart and our thoughts to the Lord and where we look into the Word of God and we get help understanding His Word and we meditate biblically, not Eastern, but biblically on the Word of God. It's a wonderful exercise, get this, that is good medicine for whatever ails us. And so that's why we call this command a prescription. Notice if you would back up in verse number 1. And I'm not going to take time to, to work expositorily through all of this this morning. I'm going to read it, give a brief explanation of this first point, and then we'll move on. James says to these believers, from whence come wars and fightings among you? I'm glad as far as I know, no one's ever had to write a letter like that to Crossroads Baptist Church. Okay. Talking about divisions among God's people. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts? These are evil desires that war in your members. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill. The word kill here is not necessarily talking about actually killing someone, but it's the idea of being willing to rob someone of life, to destroy someone's reputation in order to get what you want. You desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you, what? Ask not. And then understand when you do ask of God and don't receive and receive not, it's because you ask amiss out of an evil motive is the idea, with a wrong motive that you may consume it upon your lust. Verse number four, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Why does James use such strong terminology in addressing Christians? Because when a Christian looks for pleasure and satisfaction outside of the Lord, it's spiritual adultery. Okay. When a person gets their pleasure from the things of this world instead of through the Lord and from the Lord, it's spiritual adultery. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. It's the same as picking a fight with God. It's drawing a battle line and God's on the other side. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain or without a purpose, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy our human spirit just longing for the things of this world? We have this sin nature that is bent towards, as the songwriter said, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I love what James does in verse number six. But as much as a person may long for and think that the things of this world will satisfy in contrast to God's provision, notice what James says in verse number 6. But he giveth more grace. In other words, anything that this old deceitful world can offer us, anything that we can long for as far as sinful lust and desire goes, God gives more grace. 
Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One commentator I read this week said, when you take a biblical stand against the devil, he turns into a coward. Okay. He will flee from you. So what's the point? In these first seven verses, leading up to verse number eight, James really is telling us about all the different battles that a Christian can face and the prescription that is good for what ails us is draw nigh to God. You get close to God, you prioritize drawing nigh to God. And then just to summarize these first seven verses as it relates to getting along with people, drawing nigh to God will help you when you get, need to get along with people. What's the old saying? To dwell above with saints I love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with some saints I know, now that's a different story. But getting along with people. But when I'm living close in the awareness of the presence of God, drawing nigh to God, that is a prescription that helps me with that. Effective praying, praying the right way, not praying selfless or selfishly, but asking in a biblical way, being at peace with God as opposed to on the other side of the battle line. Dwelling in the presence of God, drawing nigh to Him will help me with that. When I'm in need of provision... The grace of God, drawing nigh to God, gets me close to the best provider that there is, the God of grace. Drawing nigh to God will help kill pride so it doesn't kill me. Drawing nigh to God also is beneficial when it comes to successful preparation for spiritual warfare with our enemy, the devil. When I submit to God, I get in rank under God, God's being the captain, I get in rank, I get in line, I'm in submission to him. From that place, I resist the devil. And James says, he will flee from you. So the key is, draw nigh to God. It's the greatest prescription. Have you ever noticed that there are things, before we move on to the second point, have you ever noticed uh, that a lot of things in life are easier and more safely done if you do it with someone? I think even about little ones. I have had a daughter or two that's been shy and bashful. And they're always more confident to do something if mommy will do it with them or if daddy will go with them. And by the way, there's safety in numbers too. Safety. That's why the relationships of this local church are so vital when it comes to each of us drawing nigh to God and standing against sin and having the encouragement that we need it, that we need. Um, a couple of years ago in that year between Jenny's passing and uh, Grace and I getting married, the kids and I were taking a trip to uh, South Carolina, Charleston to see some friends down there and we stopped at a rest stop and none of the ch kids had to use the bathroom. I did. So I went in, and of course, you can imagine in that year, just a lot of my mind, a lot going on, and I was not paying attention. So I went in, used the bathroom. As I was coming out of the stall in the bathroom, a lady came into the bathroom. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she said, or I said to her, I said, did I just use the lady's restroom? And she said, apparently so. <laughs> And I said, I'm so sorry, excuse me. And out I went. And, you know, I thought that lady could have created an international incident. She could have gone into a scream in a panic. I'm just glad that she was calm about it. I came out of the bathroom, and the kids are all sitting in the truck, the Suburban, laughing at their dad. Okay. 
because they had just seen it. And, you know, I got to thinking about it. If, if, I mean, we didn't let our girls use the bathroom alone. There's safety in that, okay? If, if it would have been normal, either, you know, Judson would have been with me, he would have caught it, or the girls would have been with me, they would have gone in the ladies' restroom, I would have noticed, okay, I got to go in this one over here. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the importance of having someone with you kinds of heartache, all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of trial, all kinds of danger, all kinds of destruction, all kinds of embarrassment. And the greatest prescription for the Christian life, I don't care what the issue is, draw nigh to God. Okay. Secondly, not only is this the greatest prescription, it's the greatest pursuit. The greatest pursuit. And I'm just going to quickly move over to this one. I'm watching her time here. The greatest pursuit when James gives this command, draw an eye to God, and he will draw an eye to you, draw an eye to God, it's not talking about a, a continuous action of just every day taking a couple steps. Joe, can you help me with this for just a second? If you just stand right there. All right. I think a lot of times, and, and, and hear me out on this, I think a lot of times when we talk about a Christian drawing an eye to God, we think about it in this way. Today, just a couple steps closer. Can I make Follow after verse number eight, okay? Joe, Joe, James. <laughs> James gives the means. Okay, if you're going to draw an eye to God, then here are some means that need to be true of your life, the way that you do this, okay? So the first part of the chapter, verses one to seven, okay, th these are the things that if you're drawn an eye to God, the prescription of this will help you in all of these different situations. Verse number 8, draw an eye to God and he will draw an eye to you. And then following verses 9 and 10, or the last part of verse number 8 all the way through 10, he gives the, the means, if you would, by which drawing nigh to God is accomplished. Okay. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Notice this, humble yourselves where? In the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So the pursuit, this greatest pursuit in drawing nigh to God, really deals with three aspects. And I'm going to take those verses, verses the last part of verse number 8 down to verse number 10, and just summarize them three different means. First of all, your personal holiness. Your personal holiness is a means that helps you or hinders you from drawing near to God. Okay, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. That's the idea of your external activities and actions, what others see about you, your associations, your testimony, the appearance of evil in your life. Yesterday morning, I put on a t-shirt. And as I was buttoning up my shirt at the beginning of the day, I noticed a spot on the t-shirt. 
And I said, well, it's going to be covered up anyway. Do you know that spot bothered me all day long? I would think about it throughout the time, like this T-shirt, it's got a spot on it. Nobody could see it. When I got undressed last night and started unbuttoning my shirt, you know the first thing I that spot. And what does James, James say in chapter number one? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself what? Unspotted from the world. Now, we're not talking about sinlessness, but I'll tell you this, as we grow in Christ, as we draw near to him, we should be sinning less. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is talking about our internal holiness as it relates to more and more progressively uh, developing a singular focus on the Lord and his things and not being distracted by the idols of this world. I've been doing a lot of personal heart preparation and reading as I think about Scott Pauley coming in April. And I'm burdened for personal revival. I want to be closer to God than I've ever been before. I want to know God at a level that I've never known him before. And I don't want to go back. Okay. I want to be drawing nigh to God. And as I was sharing with Grace about how God's working in my heart, you know what I found as far as the things that distract, the things that suck up time that I could and should be spending drawing nigh to God at designated times of the day? They're not generally bad things. But in a certain sense, they're good things. Good is the enemy of best. And so a heart that is not double-minded. And then, as we think about these means in this greatest pursuit, drawing nigh to God, not only holiness, but a right view of happiness. Now, if you just read James chapter 4, and uh, beginning in verse number 9, you would think that James was in the doldrums and wanted everybody else to be. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. James, in the Greek, it's almost as if some people might say, James is saying, everybody needs to walk around looking like you're just waiting on a gallbladder attack to happen. Okay, something bad. No, that's not what James is saying. What he is doing is he is addressing the carnal or worldly view of joy, and that is this, or happiness, that I use happiness to basically drown out issues that I need to be dealing with. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, the world gets this thing, and if we're not careful, we as Christians, we can, we can get so wrapped up in the frivolity and the shallow, cheap entertainment of this world that we let it, if I can say it, cope, help us cope with, rather than biblically dealing with our sin. But here's the deal. As we biblically deal with our sin, God has promised an exceeding comfort, an exceeding joy, an exceeding happiness on the other side of that that blows the world's idea of happiness to schmitherines. Okay, there's no comparison. I was talking to Grace the other day, and I used this illustration. In 2006, I had the privilege of going on a missions trip to the Micronesian Islands off the coast of Australia, the island of Ponape in particular. I grew up loving eating bananas and tuna sandwiches made out of canned tuna, okay? 
And I thought, man, and it was a treat for us to get bananas. And the family we came from and, and, and dad's salary and so on, it was a treat for us. We didn't get bananas all the time. So when we got one, man, a banana was a good treat. You know, a little blue sticker, Chiquita or whatever you call it on the side. And, and it was a treat for us. And then mom always got cans of tuna. We'd mix it up with mayonnaise. Sometimes she'd dice up dill pickles, put that in there, and we'd have tuna sandwiches. And that's what I thought. Man, I thought this is great. And then I went to Pohnpei where they have 45 varieties of bananas, okay. including, I mean, everything from a plantain that's like a potato all the way to these clusters or bunches of these bananas that are about this long that are about as sweet as a Snickers candy bar and a whole lot better for you. Okay. And the missionary would literally hang a massive cluster of these outside of our room where we were staying, and we would come out, man, just take, up, take one of those off and eat it. Take two of those off and eat it. Your pancreas is like, hallelujah. <laughs> anyway, and then, and then the main diet of these people on this island is yellowfin tuna. And it's like white steak. And they have it in everything. Diced, and it's like white steak, diced yellowfin tuna, fresh caught out of the Pacific Ocean on your eggs in the morning and in some dish for lunch and for supper that night, like just a big white slab of steak. You can't beat it. You know what? I came back from Ponape, and I have had a hard time ever adapting back to an American banana. And I, as far as I know, as far as I know since 2006, I have not had a tuna fish sandwich out of a can of tuna since I came back. Why? Because I got such a taste. I got such a taste of those bananas and that yellowfin tuna on the island of Ponapay that whatever is offered here, I can't hardly even stomach anymore. Listen, listen, when we deal with our issues and our sin God's way, and as James says here, you're afflicted and you're mourning, you weep and you deal with your sin God's way, the joy, the comfort that he gives on the other side infinitely outweighs and outpaces any cheap counterfeit joy this whole world can give. We get that from God. What does David say in Psalm 16? In his presence there is fullness of, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And then this issue of humility, as we think about the means of the pursuit, this issue of humility, and that is being aware of my desperate need and who I am in the Lord's presence, to say it this way, as the song says, I cannot do without thee. O Savior of the world, I need you, Lord. And so the pursuit is fueled by these means. So in this simple verse, the greatest prescription, the greatest pursuit. Thirdly, and I love this, the greatest person. Draw nigh to who? By the way, interestingly, in the original, there is a definite article so that it would read like this. Draw nigh to the God. The one and only God. Not the cheap counterfeits, not the idols of this world, not the man-made gods. You draw nigh to the true God. In James chapter 1 and verse number 5, he's the God that gives wisdom to those that ask in faith. And how does he give? He gives liberally and upbraideth not. He does not rebuke. There is no request too small for you to bring before God. Okay. 
He's the one, James 1.17, that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In James chapter number 2, this greatest person that we are commanded to draw nigh to is the God who rewarded Abraham's faith with a, with a son when it was impossible from a human perspective. He's the God that delivered Rahab from the destruction of Jericho. This God, the greatest person that we're commanded to draw nigh to, is the God that will give wisdom. James chapter 3 and verse number 17, he'll give the wisdom that comes from above that is pure and peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated and without partiality and hypocrisy and full of mercy and good fruits. He's the one in James chapter 4 and verse number 6, as we've already seen, that gives more grace. Whatever anybody else can offer to you, whatever this old world can try to allure you or deceive you with, he gives more grace. This is the God in James chapter 5 and verse number 11, where James said, you, you know the end of the Lord, the outcome of God's work in a person's life, and in particular Job's life, that he is very pitiful and of tender mercy, deep compassion that the Lord has. James chapter 5 and verses 16 through 18, as you think about the story of Elijah and the kind of God that Elijah prays to and that you prayed to and that you and I can pray to, he is the God that hears and answers prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And Elijah prayed to that God, and after the three years of famine, God opened the windows of heaven, and the rain came in answer to Elijah's prayer. And so as we think about this greatest prescription that is the greatest pursuit, we think about the greatest person. Who are we pursuing? Who are we prescribed, commanded to draw an eye to? It's the greatest person. It's the person of our God. Let our heart be the heart of Moses in Exodus 33 and verse number 15. If thy presence go not up with us, carry us not up hence. In other words, if God's not in it, we don't want anything to do with it. I read the story this week of a man who was going surfing off the coast of California. And uh, he was doing it for a day of leisure. He got there and realized that there were not a lot of people there. The only person that he saw was this massive, he called him the Goliath on the beach, this massive man. And this man was involved in Taekwondo. And so he was just working through his moves, his Taekwondo moves. And the man telling the story said that, that, that this was a hulk of a human. He said, I just noticed him, and I went swimming out into the water, paddling on my board. And he said, I got quite a ways out in the ocean. And... Out of nowhere, it seemed like I came across this little kid on a surfboard, and he was there paddling on his little belly board, too. And he said it was just shocking because here's this wide, wide ocean. And he said this kid was so small, I didn't even see him when I got in the water. And I get out there, and there he is, he said, and he was tiny enough he could have surfed on a Frisbee. And he said, so I said, hey, bud, how are you doing? He goes, I'm doing fine. He said it was obvious this kid didn't have a care in the world. And the kid just started talking to this man and said, you know, said to him, what are you doing? I'm out here surfing today. And the man asked him, he goes, well, how long have you been surfing? This little kid who could have surfed on a Frisbee, how long have you been surfing? He said, I've been surfing seven years. This little kid, well, how old are you? I'm eight. He said, and this kid was not scared. I mean, out there, there could have been sharks, whatever else this kid wasn't said. And the man just expressed his surprise. He said, buddy, he goes, I'm so, he said, you're out here all by yourself. He goes, what in the world? He said, well, actually, I'm not scared. Well, why not? That's my dad on the beach. 
That explains it. Okay. Christian, listen. We can draw an eye to God. He's the greatest person. And I don't care what the storm of life is. I don't care what the situation is. Your daddy is omnipotent. Your father is omniscient. Your father is omnipresent. He is in sovereign control of this universe. He loves you and he is good all the time. Draw nigh to the greatest person. And then fourthly and finally, and I'll hasten to a conclusion. This verse also contains, and maybe you've already noticed this, it contains the greatest promise. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Not he might. G. Campbell Morgan went years ago when he was a younger preacher. Uh, he went to visit two elderly ladies, and he was trying to encourage them, and he said, ladies, aren't the promises of God wonderful? And I don't remember which one it was that he was referring to, but the, one of the little ladies looked at, looked at G. Campbell Morgan and said, son, that's not a promise. That's a fact. It's not a promise. It's a fact. Draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. One of the best illustrations of this in all the Bibles, the prodigal son. The father standing on the porch, and as soon as that head crested the horizon, the father got off the porch and began to run. You draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Well, there are a number of verses I can think about with this. Isaiah 57, 15 the one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, he dwells with them that are of a contrite and a humble heart. We've already read Second Chronicles 15 and verse number 2, that when you seek the Lord, he will be found of you. Revelation 3 and verse number 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will hear my voice and open up, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. What a promise. Matthew 6, 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him, him while he is near. And then Isaiah goes on to say, And when you do, he will respond. He will come. He will pardon. That is the nature of our God. You draw nigh to him and he will draw nigh to you. And so in this verse, we see the greatest prescription, the greatest pursuit, the greatest person. And the greatest promise. I close with this. I read a story this week that at first it just kind of went past me. And then last night I was thinking about it again. And the significance of it struck me at a new level. I read of a young Russian man. of communism and the distribution, redistribution of the wealth and so on. We're aware of those problems. His family at one point was able to migrate from Russia, atheists and communist Russia, migrate to Paris, France. And now, after having gone from deprivation and poverty under the regime of communism, they moved to Paris, France, a country that because of the French Revolution is essentially And the young man very quickly realized 
mother and he said, get me a Bible. I'm going to prove this thing wrong once and for all. So his mother got him a Bible. And by his own testimony, by his own testimony, he said, he picked of the four Gospels that tell the life of Christ. He picked the Gospel of Mark because it was the shortest. He said, by the time I got to chapter 3, reading about this Jesus. And not in a spooky way, not in a mystical way, not in the sci-fi way, but he said, I greatest prescription, the greatest pursuit, the greatest person, and the greatest promise. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. Thank you for how you've challenged me in preparation for our time together today. Lord, if there's one here who does not yet have Jesus as Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray for us as believers, as we've been challenged, we've been reminded of this greatest prescription, this greatest pursuit, drawing nigh to God, the greatest person and the greatest promise, he will draw nigh to you. And Lord, that we would understand that the the ultimate success of our lives as believers is directly connected to the degree of our pursuing him, the degree of our seeking him, the degree that we draw near to him in our daily life. Through your word, through prayer, through fellowship, through worship. 